Welcome to the Holy Soup Podcast, where the church's status quo and sacred cows get rounded up, simmered down, and dished out. And now, here's your chief cook, author, innovator, filmmaker, and founder of Group Publishing, Tom Schultz. Welcome to the Holy Soup Podcast. Great to have you along today. The home of fearless conversation right here at uh, Holy Soup. And today's fearless conversation is based around migration and international refugee crisis issues. One of the hottest and most controversial topics in public discourse today. In politics, as you know, it's uh, the flashpoint in uh, the presidential race talking about uh, immigration and some of the refugee issues. But it's also a dicey topic for the church. How should followers of Christ view the issues surrounding refugees and immigration? Our guest today is Matthew Sorens. He's the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization for World Relief. That's the humanitarian arm for the uh, National Association of Evangelicals. And he's the co-author of a new book called Seeking Refuge on the Shores of the Global Refugee Crisis. Welcome, Matthew. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Great to have you. The uh, refugee crisis, uh, spell this out a little bit for us. What is the scope of the problem? How many people are involved? Who are these people? Why are they leaving their homelands? And where are they going? Sure. So according to the UN's refugee agency, there's uh, more than 65 million people who have been forcibly displaced in the world right now, hmm. which is an, an unprecedented number. Never since anyone has been tracking these figures has that number been that high. Um, just over 21 million of those are technically designated as refugees, meaning not only have they been displaced from their homes, but actually displaced from their countries. Um, and specifically displaced because of uh, a fear of persecution, because of their race, their religion, their political opinion, their national origin, or their social group. So it's a pretty particular definition. Obviously, there are many others in our world who are migrating for one reason or another, um, for economic reasons, even in some cases very desperate economic situations. But those individuals wouldn't get qualified under either U.S. or international law as refugees um, because refugees have to have specifically fled persecution or a fear of a credible fear of persecution. Hmm. Do you have a, a religious breakdown of uh, these millions? You know, I don't know internationally religious breakdown. I do know in terms of those who get resettled to the United States, which is not necessarily a, you know, a perfect subset mm -hmm. of or a perfect sample of those globally because the U.S. government has particular interests in who they resettle. But if you look at who has been resettled to the United States, and again, that's a very small percentage of the total. It was about 70,000 last year. Um, just shy of 50% are Christians of one sort or another, mm -hmm. um, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, um, and then the next group, um, a little bit nearer 40% is Muslims, and then you have some Hindus, some Buddhists, and other groups. So there's actually more Christians being resettled to the United States as refugees than those of any other religious tradition. Um, I expect that wouldn't hold true if you looked at who are the refugees in the world, um, because while unfortunately there are many Christians who are refugees, um, there also unfortunately are many from other religious traditions, and some of the top countries producing refugees right now are majority Muslim countries. I think the top three are Syria, Afghanistan, and Somalia. Um, and Iraq would be in the top five most likely as well in the last several years. Mm. Whereas the U.S., while we do accept refugees from all those countries, uh, the number one country of origin of refugees being resettled to the United States was actually Burma last year. Oh, really? Not a majority Christian country, but 70% of the refugees coming in are Christians. Mm. And that's because they are uniquely persecuted there in Burma. Even if you look at Iraq, for example, uh, most of the Iraqi refugees coming in are Muslim. But 35% of the, of the Iraqi refugees who have come in have been Christians of one sort or another. Hmm. 
Well, I know that uh, Christian relief agencies such as uh, World Relief and World Vision have reached out to churches to become uh, more actively involved in the care for refugees. But I know with uh, talking with some of the the leaders in these organizations that uh, some people are are disappointed and frankly puzzled why the church has not uh, stepped up more to uh, caring for refugees worldwide. Why is that? And, And what are you seeing? Yeah, you know, we when refugees suddenly became so controversial um, just over a year, just around a year ago, really, I've been working at World Relief, you know, with refugee issues for a decade or more, and refugees have never been particularly controversial. I mean, they're always a relatively sympathetic category of people. Other immigrants might have been more controversial, but refugees who come to the United States with legal status or who are abroad fleeing persecution, you know, it wasn't always a, a lightning rod, and it has become that in the last year. Mm. When that started to happen, um, probably I think it was last January, we actually commissioned uh, some research through Lifeway Research, because we were wondering, our mission at World Relief is to empower the local church to serve the vulnerable. We were sort of wondering, our church is up for that when, it come, when, the, re- when the vulnerable are refugees. Yeah. Um, we found that 86% of Protestant pastors in the U.S. said that as Christians, we have a responsibility to care sacrificially for refugees and other foreigners. So theologically, for the most part, at least at the leadership level, churches understand that. Mm -hmm. But the other findings were a little bit discouraging to us. We found that 8% of Protestant pastors said they're currently doing anything to serve refugees in their community, and just less than one in five said they were actively serving refugees internationally. So there's a pretty big gap between our theology, what we we say we believe is right based on the Bible, and our our praxis, Mm -hmm. our actions, how we apply our theology. And I, my suspicion, and, and this Lifeway research confirms this to some extent as well, is that a major reason that there is that gap is that there's so much fear around refugee issues right now. Um, and given lots of good, important things that a local church could do, I think some pastors might say, let's, you know, there's all these Bible verses that talk about the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner, uh, or the refugee, or the immigrant, mm-hmm. depending upon your Bible translation. Nobody gets upset when we talk about caring for orphans. And we should care for orphans. Mm-hmm. That's very, very clear biblically. But some people in your congregation probably will get upset when you start talking about refugees, and especially about serving the refugees who are in the United States. Um, at World Relief, we're doing both. We're empowering churches abroad in places like Jordan and even in places like Germany now um, to care for the refugees and asylum seekers in their community. But we're also one of nine agencies nationally that is authorized by the U.S. State Department to resettle refugees in the U.S. So we, we see this as a global opportunity. Mm. Well, how is the the current political rhetoric, which has really heated up in recent months, how has that affected the conversation in the Christian community? I mean, I think it, it, it's, it has had an impact in the Christian community. I would say I'm not aware of a single church that we have lost that was serving refugees locally that has that decided, actually, we're not going to do that anymore. And we've actually had a lot of new churches step up and say, we want to be a part of this. But I have had many conversations with pastors um, who've basically said, we're committing to serving, committed to serving refugees. Many times they've been doing that for years or even decades. But can you help me with the people in my congregation who suddenly don't think we should be doing that? Mm. Um, so I think, you know, Christians, just like the rest of American society, are hearing a lot of rhetoric in the news and on social media. Some of them are legitimate concerns, and there's, you know, good discussions to be had. Some of them, frankly, are based on pure falsehood. Like, there's this repeated line that we have no idea who the refugees coming to the United States are, and that's just not accurate. I mean, when World Relief um, agrees to take a case that the State Department sends us, we get a whole biographic, you know, we have a whole set of biographic information and details about 
each individual coming in, and those come from in-person interviews that our government has done with each person, and they've gone through significant background checks. It's a process that usually takes at least 18 months overseas once someone is in the pipeline to be even considered for a settlement in the U.S. So there's a lot of misinformation out there, and that fuels a lot of the fear. You know, if it was true that people were showing up on the shore and just walking in and we had no idea who they were, I would be concerned about that as well. Although I also always want to push back a little bit on the idea that our only concern should be, you know, is this safe? Mm-hmm. That's a fair question to ask. I think it's appropriate to expect our government to insist on secure processes for resettling refugees. But our first question as Christians has to be the question that Jesus was asked, which is, who is my neighbor? Mm-hmm. And if these people are our neighbors, and I think from a biblical perspective, if you look at the story of the Good Samaritan, it's hard to argue that they're not, then our response has to be one of love, even if that's a sacrificial love, even if it's not always safe. Well, in fact, uh, in your book, uh, I've got a quote here uh, where uh, you say, the command of Jesus is to love them. There, that there may be a risk or cost involved is not relevant to the mandate of love. And I, I am sure that some might... Uh, push back a little bit on, on that thinking and say, well, the command to love also includes loving my own family and my fellow citizens, opening our borders and communities to the masses that may include those who are wishing to do harm. That's not loving. That's not a loving act to our own people. Uh, how would you respond to that? No, I think that's a fair point. And I would, again, we, we would affirm the government has a really critical role here that we completely affirm. And I think even biblically in Romans chapter 13, you know, we see that the government is mandated by God, and one of its responsibilities is to maintain order to punish those who do harm. And I think it's fair to presume to keep out those who would do harm. Um, and really, the U.S. has that process in place in terms of refugees. That's not to say it couldn't be improved. We're always open to that. But you know, having resettled more about 275,000 refugees since the late 1970s, you know, in partnership with the State Department and with lots of local churches, you know, we have a lot of confidence in that process. We've never, none of those people have ever committed an act of terrorism, and part of that is the thorough processing that they go through and vetting that they go through. But I think we can insist that the government do its role and, and affirm that, that, yes, that is part of loving our neighbors, is loving the neighbors who are already here. But I, I, I think my concern is often we make an almost uh, exclusive focus on safety, and that seems to be the only question we're asking. I think the answer to that question on safety is actually it's very safe. Um, the risks are very minimal. I'm far more likely to be harmed in a car accident taking one of my refugee neighbors to the grocery store than I am for them to you know, try to blow me up or something like that. Mm. Um, but I also think we, we are called to love certainly our neighbors here, but we also do have, I think as Christians, and I don't claim this to the state necessarily, but as followers of Jesus, we have an obligation even to those who are not here, um, whether they are the few who are government decides are uniquely vulnerable and and should be resettled to the United States, or to the many, many more, the vast majority, who are going to remain in the Middle East. Um, And I think they are also our neighbors, and we need to consider how we can love them from a distance as well by partnering with local churches there. As as you just pointed out, the the United States has been involved in resettlement programs for decades, and and as you pointed out, there's been very little negative effect from, from those people. But my question is, since the rise of ISIS, have we entered into a whole new era where terrorists will use any means to perhaps infiltrate and, and kill those with uh, whom they disagree? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly would agree that ISIS is an incredibly evil group that would love to do harm to the United States and is actively trying to do so, I suspect. Um, 
I, where I think the, you know, from my perspective, the distinction would be I don't think that they are likely to try to come through the U.S. refugee resettlement program because that would be the most difficult way they could possibly get to the United States. That 18-month or longer screening process that refugees are required to go through um, is the most thorough vetting process that any category of immigrant or visitor to the United States is required to undergo. I mean, we had 70 million individuals come as visitors to the United States last year, but almost our entire focus right now, at least at the media level, has been on the 70,000 who came as refugees through the most thorough vetting process we have. Um, whereas if you look at where terrorism has happened in the United States, and this is primarily true in Europe as well, it's either been um, citizens of that country, of the U.S., for example, in a situation like Orlando or in San Bernardino, one of them was a citizen, um, or um, people who have immigrated or, or on a temporary visitor visa of some sort that did not come through that refugee resettlement program. Um, so, for example, the, the terrorist woman in San Bernardino was on a, a fiancé visa. Um, now, that's not to say we should slack on, on screening refugees. I just think that our, we actually have a strong record of screening refugees. I think we should continue to do that. We should be careful. But um, I don't, you know, Lisa Anderson with the National Association of Evangelicals said we don't want to punish the victims of ISIS for the sins of ISIS. And some of those who are coming in as refugees are individuals who are, you know, who are fleeing from ISIS and others are fleeing from, from the government in Syria, which has done actually killed even more people than ISIS, significantly more with their bombs and that sort of thing. Um, so I think it's important to have a screening process. But while we focus on the government's role and the policy questions, my real focus is, primary focus is, what is the church's role? And in some ways, regardless of if someone wants refugees to be resettled or not in the United States, they're probably going to be, at least for the, the short term. And again, World Relief, we think that's a good, good decision. But I think most of us as Christians could agree that it's in all of our interest for our local church to be there at the airport to welcome them and to meet them and to befriend them and to walk alongside them for at least the first several months that they're in their country, helping them to adjust, integrate, to learn the language. Uh, World Relief staff are part of that process as well, but uh, we rely really heavily on volunteers from local churches to have a, a level of relational connection that you know, one caseworker with many, many cases can't really do. But a team of, from a local church, we call that a good neighbor team, really can be a very good friend to that family that arrives. And again, more often, as often as not, that family is going to be a Christian already, and it's a chance to stand with and to welcome the persecuted church. Um, but in cases where they're not yet Christians, we've seen many people come to know Jesus because they're welcomed by a local church. And they very often are quick to ask that question of, you know, why are you here at the airport to welcome me? Why are you... Uh, coming once a week and helping me get to my medical appointments or helping me understand my mail. And we get to, as, as First Peter says, to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks us for the hope that is within us. And we've seen many people from Muslim backgrounds, from other, from Hindu backgrounds, make the decision to follow Jesus. And I actually think there's a missional opportunity right at our doorstep. Of course, we can live out the Great Commission by making disciples of all nations through, you know, sending missionaries to other countries. That's really important. But we've missed something really profound if we don't notice that God is also sending the nations to our own communities. We'll be right back to our conversation with Matthew Sorens. But first, when thinking about important and sometimes touchy subjects, your church can navigate these and help your people explore the issues in a friendly context. That happens every week with the Lifetree Cafe system. It's a one-hour guided conversation at your church or anywhere in the community. You receive everything you need to conduct fruitful discussions around a wide variety of topics that always lead to a spiritually enriching landing. 
keeping the focus on Jesus. Each week, you get an intriguing short film to launch the discussion and also complete instructions for your live host to conduct a time when everyone gets a chance to participate. Lifetree Cafe is a proven way to reach your community, even those people who would never step foot in a typical church service. Find out more at lifetreecafe.com. That's lifetreecafe.com. Now, back to our conversation with Matthew Sorens. Uh, you've, uh, you've mentioned some of the practical ways that Christians might uh, reach out. How would uh, uh, just an individual, not to mention a church, know about uh, how to plug in, how to help uh, refugees, whether they are those coming to this country or those who are uh, seeking some sort of resettlement uh, in another country? Sure. Um, so our website, World Relief, would be a great place to start. It's worldrelief.org. Um, in terms of the U.S., um, we're not in every community, unfortunately, but we are in about 27 communities around the U.S. So if we're anywhere near you, uh, we would love to have, whether individual volunteers or local churches, and we have a whole range of, a whole menu of ways that individuals can volunteer, from kind of short-term commitments to the more longer-term relational commitments that actually probably make the longest, you know, the, the most significant difference for a refugee family, and often for the, for the volunteer as well. We find they're often mutually transformative relationships. Internationally, World Relief has lots of opportunities for people to engage as well. Um, we do something we call Unlock Hope, which is basically an option, a way for people in the U.S. to come alongside financially along the work that we're doing um, to serve refugees in, in the Middle East and other parts of the world. Um, whenever possible, we're doing that in close partnership with local churches on the ground um, who are, in many cases, you know, serving a huge number of individuals. One of the churches that we work with in Jordan, they serve as many as a thousand people each week. Most of whom are, are children, and you know, I often am working with a church of a thousand in the United States, suggesting, "Hey, could your church figure out a way for a small group to welcome one family?" <laughs> so we, we almost have the inverse in the United States because the numbers in the United States really are not that large relative to a, a large country. You know, there's 70,000 refugees who came in last year, but they get spread around the whole country, um, and there's just a country with a lot of local churches to help welcome them. Uh, when when you think of what other countries are doing, are are other countries pulling their weight in terms of accepting uh, refugees and and uh, resettling them? And and what should our uh, response be to uh, the call that some that some say that uh, well the best way to help these refugees is to help them uh, resettle somewhere closer to their homeland? and uh, perhaps in neighboring countries. What, uh, what yeah. can we do there? Yeah, I mean, I think actually I agree that the vast majority of refugees, let's say from Syria, and it is important to know we're not just talking about Syria because this is a, is a global crisis, but looking at the Syrian situation, for example, the vast majority of refugees from Syria, there's about 4.8 million that we are aware of right now, the vast, vast majority of them are currently in Turkey or Lebanon or Jordan. Mm. I mean, Turkey alone has well over 2.5 million at this point, Lebanon more than 1 million. One in four people in Lebanon is a Syrian refugee at this moment, which is, I mean, the numbers are actually very hard to fathom, mm. whereas the United States is, has just welcomed about 10,000 Syrian refugees since the war began in 2011. Um, so that's actually a very small share of the overall. Um, we're not advocating that the United States should take everybody. We don't think that's the best option for the U.S. or, or frankly, for those refugees. Um, it's most of them would prefer to stay close by with the hope that things in Syria will settle down and they can go back home. 
But there are cases that are uniquely vulnerable, even in that second country, um, whether that's because of discrimination or because they're a single mom with lots of kids having trouble supporting themselves, you know, even finding food to support themselves, or someone with a unique health condition that is completely treatable but not in a refugee camp or not in an urban setting where they may be living. It's also important to understand that, especially with the Syrian refugees, most of them are not living in camps. Um, more than 80% are living in urban settings where that usually means they're paying their own rent, which when you're not authorized to work, which they're not in most cases, is uniquely difficult. Um, so I think there are neighboring countries that are doing a great deal. We should con continue to encourage them to do a great deal, and, and I know our, you know our State Department diplomats are doing so. Um, part of the U.S. taking a small number of refugees, frankly, is us having some credibility with a country like Jordan or Lebanon to say, we need you to keep your doors open, mm. and we're going to do a small part um, by taking in some of the most vulnerable cases, 10,000 this year if they meet their goals, um, which they're likely to do, um, potentially a, a slightly higher number next year. But nobody is talking about millions of people the way that Turkey or, or Lebanon is, is receiving millions of mm -hmm. people. Well, what's an example of a successful refugee resettlement here in this country where the Christian community has been involved and really stepped up? You know, I think one of the best long, long uh, I think one of the best long-term examples to look at is actually the last great refugee crisis that we had, which was at the end of the Vietnam War, mm -hmm. late 70s and into the 80s. Um, we had huge numbers of Vietnamese refugees as well as Cambodian and Laotians around the same time, Hmong, um, who were brought to the United States. Um, they were, sometimes were called the boat people at the time. And just as an example, in 1980, the United States received 200,000 refugees um, compared to 70,000 last year. So numbers significantly higher than what we're doing now. And that's where World Relief's refugee resettlement programs actually got their start. It was a Christian and Missionary Alliance missionary couple who had, had served in Vietnam for many years, came back to the U.S., and um, first with their denomination and in partnership with a Lutheran refugee resettlement group, and then uh, they actually worked with World Relief to start working with a lot of the evangelical churches to welcome in those refugees. And, I mean, we could look at individual cases, but if you look a generation later, first of all, the Vietnamese American community is far more likely to be Christian than the Vietnamese in Vietnam. And a little bit of that is that Christians were quick to flee. But another part was that so many of those families who were Buddhists or were of other religious traditions were met at the airport by a local church and were welcomed and were supported in, in very tangible ways as well as in spiritual ways um, by American Christians. And, you know, I think you, could, you see the legacy of that. Uh, I, I worked down the street from Wheaton College, which just hosted the Hmong uh, Youth Conference a couple weeks ago, and they filled up their chapel with young Hmong Christians, most of them born in the United States, but of families that were welcomed to the United States by, by Christians, you know, a generation ago. And I actually think that, I wondered as I saw that, uh, you know, will this be 30 years from now, the Syrian Christian community gathering at Wheaton College or another Christian college worshiping, many of whom may have come from Muslim backgrounds but were welcomed in by the church. Mm -hmm. and, and I should be clear, that wasn't then and, and never should be a coercive sort of thing where we're going to trick you into becoming Christians, but it's a pretty natural thing as people are welcomed by Christians and they're coming from a difficult situation. Many of them want to understand more about who Jesus is. Mm -hmm. and we have that opportunity, and I think we see that opportunity. You could look at the economic dynamics as well. If you look at the Vietnamese-American community today, um, again, almost entirely either refugees or the descendants of refugees from that era, they have incomes that are higher than U.S. citizens on the average, hmm. more likely to be employed than U.S. citizens on the average. And they're, you know, they're economically certainly a success story 
And a lot of that has been through entrepreneurship, things like the walk-in nail salon, which really did not exist in the United States until Vietnamese refugees uh, created that business, which is now in almost every community. I think my wife keeps about half of them alive, (laughs) for sure. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us uh, today. Tell us, uh, again, where people can learn more about your work and and your book. Sure. So if folks go to worldrelief.org, they can both find the book there. Um, It's available in you know, from pretty much any bookstore as well as an audio form and Kindle or electronic book. Um, and you can also um, find out more about World Relief, what we're doing both in the United States and internationally. Well, thank you so much. Thanks so And time. everybody, feel free to uh, leave a comment here on uh, Holy Soup and subscribe to the podcast as well as, uh, as, well as the blog at holysoup.com. And we'll see you next time on Holy Soup.